Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and the author in your classroom, or wherever you're listening today, is a writer who I know means a huge amount to many, many of you. And I'm talking about teachers and parents as well as pupils, because her books have been thrilling readers for a very long time indeed. In fact, her first story for children, Ricky's Birthday, was published in 1969. But it was a book that came out in 1991 about a troubled 10-year-old with a fiery spirit and a vibrant imagination living in a residential care home that really led to her becoming one of the best-known and most deeply loved children's writers of our time. That troubled 10-year-old, now a mother of a 10-year-old of her own, by the way, was, of course, the irrepressible Tracy Beaker. And her creator is, of course, the equally irrepressible Dame Jacqueline Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, Jacqueline. Hello, Helen. It's lovely to be here and hopefully talking to lots and lots of children. It is absolutely wonderful to have you, Jacqueline. Now, you have written more than a hundred published books and you've sold over 40 million copies. That's just in the UK. Now, I know that you wanted to be a writer from when you were really quite small, six years old, I think. And I wonder what that six-year-old would say if we were to travel back in time and tell her just how far her stories would eventually take her. She would have been so astonished. Absolutely. (laughs) She would would never believe it in a million years. I didn't come from a posh home at all. Um, My mum and dad laughed at me when I said I wanted to write books. And my teachers, some of them were, were fine, but nobody ever dreamt that I would even managed to publish one book, let alone many, many, many. But um, I just feel so lucky because so many children have big dreams when they're young and somehow or other they don't ever make it. But um, I, I I just went for it. And with an enormous amount of luck and a lot of hard work too, here I am. I've had a wonderful, wonderful writing career. You certainly have. I, I wonder what it was about about your relationship with books and, and with writing from a very early age that meant you knew this this was what you wanted to do, and then meant you stuck at it. I loved books right from the start. I only had a very few. And my mum and dad got quite tired of reading me the same picture books and the same (laughs) sort of beginning to read books. So I used to look at the pictures and actually make up my own stories to them. And then I was an only child and I often played with imaginary friends. And I think that's almost the beginning of being a writer, making things up. And so by the time I could actually laboriously print out a few sentences when I was about five and a half, I suppose. I had so many stories inside my head and just wanted to write them down just to keep them. And I had already, because I liked books so much, I had realised that apart from the title, the name that you got on the front page or on the shiny cover was the writer. And I thought, I want to be one of them. (laughs) And do you think you would still feel the same about writing and about stories if no one ever read 
what you wrote. Do you think having at least one reader is part of what it means to be a writer? I think it does, particularly now. But when I was a child, I did, it was the sheer joy of writing a story that spurred me on. And I felt a bit shy of sharing my stories with any of my friends in case they laughed at me. Does that include your imaginary friends? Uh, oh, well, do you know, in that imaginary life, I wasn't me. Oh. I, I would pretend to be other people entirely. And um, I was mostly interested in them rather than me. It was as if I was a spectator. I really, without realising, took the author point of view right from the start yeah. and just observed what they were doing. And um, I suppose I joined in the, the, the imaginary game <laughs> occasionally, but, but really it was just happening in front of my eyes. I must have looked very odd as a child in a room by myself, <laughs> muttering away. That's the most writerly description of having an imaginary friend I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> Well, they they were just material, really. <laughs> but it's when whenever I talk face to face with children, and they always ask, you know, how do you write? You know, where do you get your ideas from? And um, I always try to remind them about when they were very young, because even if you're not a desperately imaginative child, probably you've had some cuddly toy in the past that you went to bed with and you might have a little conversation with them saying, it's not fair, mum shouldn't have told me off or something like yeah. that. And I mean, that is actually imagining things. You know your teddy isn't real and yet you can make it real just by talking to it and maybe making it talk back. And it's just tapping into that knack that, that helps you write stories. And you've created so many memorable, wonderful characters in your books over the years. And you've also explored so many different kinds of lives and, and shapes of families. How much research goes into your writing? Do you know, I generally write the story first but if it's about say a child like Tracy Beaker who's been in a children's home and then is fostered I tend to check up on things afterwards I don't particularly in those sorts of cases I didn't want to go to a children's home and meet real children because they would be if they wanted to telling me their stories but then they would think I would be writing this story for them. Yeah. And it kind of, if you try and do that, you're not true to your own imaginary feelings. And somebody like Tracy is very naughty and very difficult at times. They wouldn't want to upset any child confiding in me. So I mostly make it up. But then I did manage to find a friend who had worked for the Foster Care Association and also had fostered children herself. So I picked her brains afterwards when I already had Tracy firm in my mind. And then she gave me some very useful leaflets about fostering. And one of them was a booklet. It's all very different now. But in those days, it was just a rather plain booklet, my book about me, in which children who didn't have um, a fond relative who would be sticking in photos and putting in their first stories or birthday cards or anything like that, a child could stick them in and then answer all sorts of questions. And 
all kids like to fill in things about, you know, my favourite toy and my favourite television programme and this sort of thing. And it immediately gave me the idea, write my book, which is going to be about this feisty little girl called Tracy. I'm going to have the start of it as if she had been sat down by her long-suffering social worker and said, right, Tracy, we're going to help you write a book about you. And I thought, Tracy's going to do it her way and she's going to muck about and she's not always going to be ultra-truthful. And I thought the children might find this a funny beginning and an easy-to-read beginning because there are just little short sentences. And then I wanted there to be lots and lots of drawings in the book as if Tracy herself had been doing little cartoony drawings. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to Nick Sharrett, who really made the character of Tracy Beaker his own and sort of picked up on my ideas and then elaborated on them. And, you know, it's just been a, a fantastic partnership. I mean, I had written quite a few books before Tracy Beaker, but she was the one that actually made people really know who I was. Yes. And of course, about five years later, the very popular television serial really caught a lot of children's imaginations. And, you know, still, I get 20-something people in the street saying, oh, my God, it was you, wasn't it? You wrote Tracy Beaker. And, you know, it makes me feel so happy and so proud that I had that little bit of an impact <laughs> on a generation. It's a huge impact. You should have seen the face of every single colleague that I told I would be speaking to you this week. <laughs> they all jumped up and down like the 10-year-olds they were when they first oh. read your books. <laughs> they were so excited. It's wonderful. And as I say, you've written well well over a hundred books now, and and most of them have been um, standalone stories. And there's no sign that your inspiration for for new situations and and relationships to write about is, is likely to run out anytime soon. Thank goodness. But your latest novel, which comes out in September 2021 does something you've only done a couple of times before, I think, which is to use an existing story and a really famous one as your your starting point and your framework. So you've already reimagined one of my favourite books of all time, What Katie Did, um, plus E. Nesbitt's Five Children and It. So what was it that made you go back to E. Nesbitt and take a new look at the Railway Children. Ian Esbitt's always been one of my most favourite authors and I very much enjoyed doing my own interpretation of her wonderful five children and it. And I just borrowed her magic creature <laughs> and then thought about modern children and what they would wish for if they could. But the, the book that really meant the most to me as a child that, that E. Nesbitt has written, Edith Nesbitt, I mean, she called herself E. Nesbitt. And I think that was possibly just like J.K. Rowling. She, she didn't want to put off boys reading her. And also, she was a very kind of romantic soul. Maybe she thought that Edith just didn't have that fantastic, you know, <laughs> sort of interesting ring about it. But um, The Railway Children is... Well, I thought as a child, The Railway Children was very realistic. And it is in some ways. And her characters, 
Bobby, who's a girl, short for Roberta, and Peter and Phyllis are real children. And even though they're Edwardian children, they talk very much like children nowadays and they squabble and they gang up on each other and yet they really care for each other a lot. And um, I was just engrossed in their their adventure. And then, then there was a very famous film um, with Jenny Agatha playing Bobby. Um, if anybody watches Call the Midwife... <laughs> The the sister in charge of the convent is actually the most adorable young girl and she played this part to perfection. And it, it just meant a lot to me. And yet I thought if I'm going to reimagine something and particularly if I'm going to take on a wonderful book like The Railway Children, part of, of the reason is to encourage children to read the original because sadly not many children want to read the classics nowadays. Maybe because mistakenly they think it's going to be a difficult read and a hard read. And I think particularly once you've read the first few pages of many children's classics, right, you're in there and just loving the story. But I also thought when I reread it as an adult, it might be interesting to do it as it would happen now. I mean, to start with, in, in the original story, the three children are in the countryside and they're near a railway station. But it's kind of a new railway station for them. And it's just an amazing thing to have a train and they love looking at the trains. And I thought, well, very few children now, if, they, if the town they live in has a railway station, just want to hang out by the railway station. And I think we'd worry tremendously about children playing around on a platform by themselves or, you know, appallingly the idea they might be stupid enough to go on the railway line. And, and I mean, we're so aware of danger now. And I thought, well, how could I possibly work that? But then I thought, what about a vintage steam engine railway? And um, and there are quite a few around the country. They're wonderful places and loads of families have fun having a day out there riding on these wonderful old steam engines and all sorts of dedicated people keep the engines going. Um, and I've, I've been on a couple of times and loved it. So I thought, this is my answer. So I thought that would be quite interesting. Um, I, I had to brush up on all my railway knowledge, which was <laughs> nil to start with. But I got lots of old books like, you know, the, the Boys Book of Railways and <laughs> the Wonder Book of Steam Engines, most of which were very complicated. I think boys and girls had, had more sort of concentration on hard fact <laughs> in those days. But I hope every bit of information in the book is OK. If not, I, I won't mind. I should be very poor apologetic of people write to me saying, um, you got it wrong there. Um, but anyway, I, th I thought that would be really interesting to do. But I also thought in the, in the book, the original book, um, dad is sent to prison. And this is all a terrible mistake. And because in a children's book, you couldn't have a dad that went to prison because dads in most children's books in the past were considered perfect people. Yes, they were the big heroes. Absolutely. And mum 
is in the original book is tremendously courageous. And no matter what happens, she takes the children to this cottage. And even the first night in the cottage, when there's scrabbling and mum realises there well might be rats. Now, she doesn't shriek as I would do or <laughs> burst into tears. She is wonderful. The children say she's splendid. And this mum got on my nerves a bit, to be quite honest, <laughs> reading about her as an adult. Because, you know, mums try their hardest, but they aren't always ultra courageous and valiant. And because I love Edith Nesbitt so much, I've read quite a lot about her. And she wasn't the greatest mum herself, to be <laughs> truthful. So I thought, how about if the, in the modern version, there's a reason why dad is away? And it's a truthful reason. The reason for mum getting a bit upset and worried and irritable at times. And then in the original book, the particular big thing for me was very much written from Bobby's point of view, the oldest girl. And she is without a doubt mum's favourite. And then there is Peter, who's the boy. And mum's got a very soft spot for her son. But the youngest, Phyllis, um, the way that E. Nesbitt describes her was that she meant extremely well, which is is Ooh. funny, but it's a little bit edgy here because it implies that Phyllis always mucks things up and makes mistakes and is silly, which she does a little bit in the book, but she's younger than the others. And I thought, how about writing from my youngest child's point of view? So that basically I'm taking this beloved story and taking a terrible risk. I'm shaking it all up like, like cakes in a paper bag so that you get an original eclair and I've turned it into a donut or something <laughs> like that. And I just hope that is an exciting story for modern children. Um, ancient grannies my age might think, why is she playing about with this book? But I hope you could read both of them quite happily. And I think that, that anybody who who sometimes feels they're a bit hard done by in a family, anybody that loves adventures, anybody that's suddenly taken out of their ordinary, comfortable suburban life and discovers what life is like in the country. And since COVID, a lot of families have moved to the country. Yeah. I just I just wanted to show what it's like when you change your life entirely and how you cope. So fingers crossed. I, <laughs> I hope it's worked. Well, I think you have created a delicious donut and I think we should tuck into it right now if that's okay so do you think um if i pause the recording for a little while you could find a good spot in the book and then perhaps when we come back you could read a little bit from the primrose railway children and then we can talk about it a bit more i'd be delighted Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with our very special guest today, Dame Jacqueline Wilson. Jacqueline, you're going to read to us now from your new book, The Primrose Railway Children. Before you start, perhaps you could explain a little bit about where we are in the story so we can all get in the picture. Right, here we go. This is from the beginning of chapter eight 
And my family are in the country, mum, and then there's Bex, the eldest girl. There's Perry, the boy in the middle. And there's my girl, Phyllis, who's telling, not Phyllis, Phyllis is in the original book. My girl is Phoebe. She'd be very cross with me for not remembering <laughs> her name. And they have discovered this amazing vintage railway and they have gone in the station and they're having a breakfast in the Junction Cafe. It was very old-fashioned, with a glass dome over the cakes and floral china crockery. There were two jolly ladies doing the cooking, both wearing white caps and large aprons. The station special was a plate of eggs, bacon, sausages, tomatoes, mushrooms, hash browns and baked beans, with toast on the side and a pot of tea. Mum was very much a Bircher muesli and black coffee person, but she surprised us. Come on then, kids, let's go for it. Four specials all round, she suggested. A fry-up, said Bex. I only have toast and strawberry jam for breakfast, said Perry. I'd like the special breakfast, Mum. Yes, please, I said quickly. Good for you, Phoebe, said Mum. Bex, I know it's not that healthy, but it's a special treat for the first day of our holiday. In fact, let's call it lunch, so you can eat it too, Perry. The plates of breakfast forward slash lunch were even bigger and better than I'd imagined. Bex and Perry and I cleared our plates. I ate mum's sausage and hash browns from her plate too, gobbling it down quickly before she could protest. Then we bought four tickets for the 11 o'clock train. It wasn't quite as special as the Pullman, but it was still pretty exciting, with its gleaming paint and many carriages, each with their own number painted in gold. We selected our own carriage up at the engine end. It had lovely upholstered seats and a picture hanging on the wall, as if it was a little living room. There was a splendid luggage rack and a sliding door that shut you off from the corridor. Perry and I went exploring and discovered a special old-fashioned lavatory at the end of the corridor with a wooden seat and a pull chain, rather like the one back at the cottage. There was a sudden loud rushing sound that startled us all. Oh, wow, that's the steam, said Perry, rushing out into the corridor and sticking his head out the open window. I can see it, I can see it. Mr Thomas Brown, the station master, blew a whistle and another old gentleman at the platform waved a flag and then we chugged off on our way. Oh, I love this. I wish all train journeys were like it. I'd love to go back to olden times, I said. It was like living in the past. There was countryside all around us with an occasional old cottage and farmland. We weren't near any road, so we couldn't see any modern cars. There weren't even any telegraph wires. We couldn't hear any planes up above, just the steady rhythm of the wheels beneath us. Every so often, there was a wonderful whoop as the steam gushed out. We could see wisps of it wafting past our window. Perry hung out of the corridor window, craning his neck to try to see the engine. Get your head back in. You'd get it knocked off or fall right out if you're not careful, said Mum, rushing out of our carriage to stand near. We saw glimpses of Perry's face, distorted by the speed, his mouth a huge gape of happiness. 
He's loving it, said Bex. So am I, I said. It's absolutely fantastic. Don't you think so, Bex? It's okay, said Bex. It's really for little kids, though, and old men that like to dress up in fancy dress uniform and play trains like Mr Thomas Brown. Oh, don't be mean. Mr Thomas Brown's lovely, and so is this whole railway. Bex, we have to stay at the cottage. I can go to the field every day, and Perry can ride on the train, and you can... I tried to think of something that Bex would enjoy. Yes, said Bex. She checked her phone. There's still not any signal. It's not like we're on the moon. How come I could text home on the top of a mountain in Switzerland on my school skiing trip and yet I can't get any signal at all in this dreary old bit of England? It's not the slightest bit dreary, I said indignantly. For pity's sake, Phoebes, there's nothing here, said Bex. No shops, no cinemas, no McDonald's and no working phones. Hey, maybe someone will mend the telephone near our cottage, I said. Oh, very funny. I don't think anyone actually uses those old red phone boxes any more. And anyway, you couldn't message anyone. I've got nobody my age to talk to. Bex gave a huge sigh and flung herself back in her seat, arms folded. Then I saw her expression change. Her eyes widened. A young train attendant in an old-fashioned navy uniform had stopped to talk to Mum and Perry in the corridor. He was incredibly good-looking, with clean-cut features, blue eyes and thick wavy hair a little too long for his regulation cap, which he wore at a jaunty angle. He was smiling at Perry, probably telling him all sorts of train facts, and Perry was gazing up at him, ultra-impressed. Mum was looking amused and grateful. How old do you think he is? Bex asked. Perhaps 18, I said. Bex nodded. Yeah, I think you're right. She breathed a sigh. <gasps> He's gorgeous. So that's <laughs> Bex quite happy to be living there now. I think we might have found something that Bex might be interested in. I love that extract. And for me, it really captures, I think, what you've done at, at the heart of this book, which is somehow holding on to that old-fashioned simplicity of the life that's described in the original story, but also clearly bringing it into a world that today's children will recognise with mobile phones and stressy parents and, and stroppy teens. I wonder if you think that that simple life, those, those really positive, lovely things that you write about, are something that today's children could just generally benefit from experiencing a bit more of? I think so. I mean, it's difficult for me because I'm older now um, and I've nothing against a, a, a more complex life where, where you know, kids are forever um, looking at their Game Boys and girls are texting and, um, you know, practicing their selfies <laughs> and their TikTok routines and everything. And yet, I think... Perhaps the charm for, for children sometimes with going out with grandma and grandpa, they do more ordinary things. They might even, you know, if you're a little kid, take, take you to feed the ducks in the park. And these sorts of things, I think, still can be fun. Teenagers are different. <laughs> and I think you've, you've got to try and find something that they won't find too lame and pathetic. But <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, children 
a, a primary school, you know, do there's room for all sorts of enjoyment. And certainly, I think a lot of parents now have had a big rethink about life in general. And, the, you know, the charms of the countryside uh, are becoming much, much stronger. I'm, I mean, I live in the countryside now and I, I've lived there for the last five years. And my goodness, I can understand that because although I used to live in the suburbs, I, I used to go up to London two or three times a week. But the countryside's got so much going for it. And um, and we're all slightly more involved in nature now. Um, my, my girl in the book, Phoebe, there's a field attached to the land by the cottage and she just likes to go there and lie there and, and listen and pretend things in her head. And um, um, I have a similar field and I do exactly the same. I suppose it's what we... You know, the, these days we might call that mindfulness, I guess. I you know, think whereas so. Whereas when we were younger, it was just going to lie in a field and think about stuff. Yes, that that's exactly it. I think we've, I think for children there are all sorts of words that won't necessarily trip off their tongue, but if you if you think about lying in a field and and watching a ladybird on the back of your hand or being kind to somebody if they look upset. I mean, all these quite simple things that have got special names nowadays and are maybe even taught in school, but it it does make you feel good when you, when you do them. I'm not, I'm not saying let's all be total goody-goodies or whatever, <laughs> but um, it's, it, it's sometimes we're all in a rush and it, it's nice just to have time to enjoy the simple life. I very much agree with that. I, I wonder if the idea of, of taking a story and characters that you already love, as you clearly do with the railway children, and thinking of a new way to share them, a new way to shake them up and, and, and reframe them. I wonder if that's a, a writerly technique you might recommend to listeners who are with us today? I think it's a very good idea. And certainly in the past, I have had lots of emails and, and decorated letters from children who've liked one or other of my books. And they then say, and I've added some bits on to the end for oh. you. Or I think Tracy Beaker would make friends with this person. And um, and I, I write historical books too. And the, the Hetty Feather ones, when yes. she's in a really strict foundling hospital, which is a bit like an orphanage. And um, lots of girls enjoy writing about their, their own kind of orphanages with very cruel matrons. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think when you're a child, you, you can have this jumping off thing in that you don't have that awful, oh, I don't know what to write about. But you can take some characters from a book you love or a situation and and just rearrange it. However, you can't do that just like that when you're an adult because you'll get into serious trouble. <laughs> I mean, if you choose to take a children's classic book where um, 
after a certain number of years go past, anybody can actually publish the book or do what they like with it. That's a different matter if that's what you want to do. But um, sadly, as it may seem, anybody write, budding writers, they cannot just take my character, Tracy Beaker or Hetty Feather. Or if they like Phoebe in the Primrose Railway Children, they can't say, right, I'm going to write about her now and maybe I'll get it published because they're mine, <laughs> mine for the moment. There we go. We have this on record now, people. Yes. In the future, when I'm no longer here, maybe yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to think about that, Jacqueline. Um, what I would like you to think about, though, is I'm going to say that you can take any other classic book that you would like and 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 rework it. Are there any on your list of books that you've thought about? See, I'm thinking a, a Jacqueline Wilson version of... Anne of Green Gables would be something I would really quite enjoy reading. That that would be a very interesting idea. And go, going back to E. Nesbitt, um, the story of the amulet, it might be quite fun to go back to ancient Egyptian times. There are various different things. But, you know, if I knew more about horses and I suppose, you know, I could ask the local stables if I could go along and chat to people. There's a book that really stirred me as a child called Black Beauty. Oh, me too. About the, I mean, it's a lovely little foal when we start off and then actually dreadful things happened to poor Black Beauty along the way because Anna Sewell, the author, was trying to show how cruelly horses were often treated in Victorian times. But I'd, I'd love to write a story like that or, or maybe a story about a racing greyhound who just doesn't want to. Although that rings a bell. I think possibly Michael Mapergo got there first <laughs> with that one. Um, but I do love animals and I don't think I've ever written a book just about an animal. We'll, we'll have to wait and see though. We will, but maybe, may, so maybe this is the first news of a possible new Jacqueline Wilson franchise coming <laughs> up. You heard it here first on Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but we, we're starting to run out of time. Um, and I did just want to remind all the teachers and, and parents listening that we produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so children can take the advice and the words that they've heard from our guests and put them into action in their own creative writing. All the packs are available to download from plazoom.com and the details are in the episode notes. So while everyone makes a note of that, I'm going to pause the recording just once more for a moment and then Jacqueline and I will be back for a little more book talk. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with this episode's marvellous guest, Dame Jacqueline Wilson. I keep calling you Dame Jacqueline Wilson because I just like saying it. I don't know if you like hearing it particularly. Well, I was delighted to be made a dame because it wasn't really just for me. It was for services to children's literature. Yes. And I thought I'm, I'm getting this on behalf of all the authors that in normal times go out into classrooms and, and talk sometimes 
three, even four sessions a day or take part in assembly and everything. And it's delightful, but it's hard work and an awful lot of traveling. So I, I thought, well, the damehood is for, is for everybody. Um, but uh, I, I don't insist on <laughs> being called a dame. And every time the word is said, it takes me back to pantomime days. And I, I think, you know, <laughs> of a man with a red nose and a bizarre dress or whatever. So hopefully my nose is not red and my dress isn't too bizarre. <laughs> Jacqueline, I think it's fair to say that especially amongst grown-ups who maybe haven't read many or, or even any of your books, that you're known as an author who deals with difficult and gritty and even controversial issues. Yet every time I speak to a child or an adult who's an actual fan of yours, it's obvious that for them, your books are a completely joyful, uplifting reading experience. Do you think that both things can be true? I, th I think they are. And I think it's people's attitudes. And some parents like to protect children at all costs. And while they're growing up, make them feel that everything can be sorted out. And that if there are problems, often they try to, they're very hard to keep them from children. And I respect this attitude. And, you know, if it works for families, that's absolutely fine. But also, to start with, there are children who aren't necessarily from one of those wonderful, warm, comfy, loving families. And it's a bit lonely if you feel that isn't your experience. So I wanted to write for all the children who um, didn't necessarily feel completely relaxed and safe over something or other or, or children that, you know, going through that horrible state that nearly everybody does when your best friend goes off with somebody else and you're just left and nobody to go around with at yeah. school. I, I wanted to write for all these odd ones out. And also, if you were, if you're the luckiest child and, you know, you're bright and you're much loved and everybody wants to be your friend, I wanted to show what it's like if you're not like that. And when I was young, I mean, I read so many books and, um, you know, I was a very keen reader, but particularly with books written in the 1950s, early 1960s, nearly every family story was about a comfortably off family. Mum and dad didn't argue. Um, the children, well, you mentioned what Katie did, and there is a, a child that's the odd one out in that, little Elsie, who, yes, of who you know, is a bit picked oh. on and feels fed up. And um, I'm always very fond of children like that. I wanted to write about the the Elsies of this world. <laughs> and um, the, the, the really bright, clever, bouncy, cheerleader-type children. I mean, they're all very special and lucky, but they don't need me to, to write their books. <laughs> <laughs> so are you still an eager reader? Are you still gobbling up books at, at the rate you did when you were small? What, what kinds of stories do you like to read? 
I still like family stories. Um, I'm an enormous Anne Tyler fan and think um, I've read every single thing that she's written. And there, there are various other authors in, in the same vein that I like. Um, a new find is the American author Elizabeth Heaney, who um, I think writes very dryly and wittily about family life. I mostly prefer family life, but I used the word family quite loosely because families can be all sorts of different little groups of people. And um, so they give me great joy. But I mean, I like reading Dickens. I like reading um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which I must have read a good 10 or 12 times. Um, I, I read quite widely uh, across the board and always have to have a book on the go. The ones books, sort of books I don't read are Jacqueline Wilson books because I make them up. I have my first draft, I have my second draft. There's a huge long editorial process. By the time the book is actually published, I mean, apart from reading bits out and talking to it when uh, when it's just newly published, that's it on the shelf. <laughs> and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm still very fond of my characters, and I've tried hard with every book, but no, don't want to read them again because how awful if they're published, and then you think, why on earth did I do that? Why didn't I make that character do something? And it never quite ever gets to be as good as you hope it's going to be when you first start out. And maybe that's the writer's life, isn't it? You're, you're, you're always writing. You're always finding the next story and seeing what you can do better and, and differently and, and fresh and new. And, and I, I guess that's the joy of, of writing. I think it is. And I think it's important for children to realise that I remember when I was young and writing my own stories I would get stuck after about five, six pages and then I get a bit bored with the story and not really want to continue. And I feel as long as it's not for school, when obviously you, you need an ending, uh, does it matter if you don't finish it? No, it doesn't. Go on to something else. And um, I think that that's the one time in your life when you can just purely write for fun and um just just enjoy it. That, that's what's important. I know when you're writing and particularly when you're doing something for school, you have to think of a good beginning. You often have to make notes beforehand. Um, you have to think of a good ending. You have to try to um, use correct grammar. You have to remember all your commas and your full stops. When you're writing all by yourself, for yourself. I mean, it's good to remember all these things, but just write what's in your head. Don't necessarily plan ahead. Surprise yourself. And um, I think just, just enjoy that luxury because nobody wants to make writing hard work. And it is hard work, but while you can just be joyful about it, you go for it. I think that is wonderful advice, Jacqueline. And on, on that note, we, we are genuinely nearly at the end of our time for this episode. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's It's been a joy speaking to you. I really hope that all our listeners rush out as soon as um, The Primrose Railway Children is published and read it. And I, I do hope as well that it inspires them to read 
the original because like you I'm a huge fan of the original book and and now I love your version too and they don't cancel each other out it's not one or the other you know reading your book just made me want to go back and reread the original as well and I, I hope that's a journey that that lots of our readers will go on thanks to you so as I said at the beginning of this episode you mean so much to more than one generation of readers and I just think that's an incredible gift to give the world so thank you for that and thank you for being with us and maybe we might be able to speak to you again before too long oh that would be lovely I've had such a lovely time talking to you Helen thank you Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.